You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present the Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. everyone and welcome to the Health Hub. I'm Kathy Biasa, your host, and along with our producer, Alex Diaz, and everyone here at Radio Maria Canada, a great big thank you for joining us. Today's show is taped, so no opportunity for calling in. We would love for you to follow us on our social sites. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and we are at the Health Hub RMC on those locations. And do feel free to email us at thh at radiomaria.ca. Please subscribe to our podcast. We are the Health Hub on iTunes, SoundCloud, all your favorite uh, podcast platforms. And you can also find our podcasts on the Radio Maria Canada website, which is radiomaria.ca, and on my website, which is kathybsa.com. You know, there was a time when productivity required movement, but as things have changed, as we have evolved, now we find that a lot of our productivity is achieved, is brought to the forefront when we are seated. And this is translating into health issues and not just for adults, but also for our children as they too are being driven inside physical activity in uh, school grounds and within the school uh, education and curriculum are being limited. And we need to address this issue. And today we have with us Katie Bowman, who will do just that for us. Best-selling author, speaker, and a leader in the movement movement, biomechanist Katie Bowman is changing the way we move and think about our need for movement. Her nine books, including the groundbreaking Move Your DNA and Movement Matters, have been translated into more than a dozen languages worldwide. Katie teaches movement globally and speaks about sedentarism and movement ecology to academic and scientific audiences. Her work has been featured in diverse media such as The Today Show, CBC Radio One, The Seattle Times, and Good Housekeeping. One of Maria Shriver's Architects of Change and America Walks Woman of the Walking Movement, she has worked with companies like Patagonia, Nike, and Google, as well as a wide range of nonprofits and other communities, sharing her Move More, Move More Body Parts, and Move More for What You Need message. Her movement education company, Nutritious Movement, is based in Washington State, where she lives with her family. Learn more about her on her website, nutritiousmovement.com. I am so happy to have Katie with us. It's such an important topic, something that, you know, once it moves into that space where we need to think about moving, we have to start educating ourselves. So please do stay with us and we will talk to Katie when we get back. Mm -hmm. 
Listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. As mentioned, our show is being recorded today, so no opportunity for calling in. But please do follow us on our social sites. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and we are at the Health Hub RMC in all three locations. Katie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule. Oh, I'm very excited to be here. Thank you for having me. So much to cover, so many books, obviously a voracious, ad- voracious, voracious ad- appetite of people wanting to understand, you know, we, we think, I think the concept of movement is almost intuitive, but obviously it's not. And so you're filling a huge void. But before we get into this great body of work that you, you have uh, produced for us, can you explain what a biomechanist is? <clears throat> sure. I'll try. Um, so bio- biomechanics is it's just a field of science. Uh, bio is biology and mechanics is a branch of uh, physics, the mechanical laws, um, you know, like friction and, and pressure and pretty simple, simple mechanics so like that levers systems. And so um, I look at human movement, not through the lens of um, biochemistry, you know, there are exercise physiologists who will study movement and look at things like um, how, it, how movement affects metabolism and, and um, the biochemical markers of, of how the body is working. But a biomechanist looks more at the pushes and pulls of movement, the much more me- mechanics of it, if you will. So I, I look at how, what are the movements that make up movement, I guess would be the, the mm-hmm. least complicated way to say it. So we all move our bodies from point A to point B. We call that movement. Like say you take a walk, um, but, but how you are able to take a walk is the sum total of how all of your individual or your separate levers are moving. And so many people don't walk, not because they don't want to, but say like a knee hurts or a foot hurts. So, so biomechanics is, is the study of what's going on at the at the at the lever system on the forces system uh, and and how that affects ultimately our well-being or our physical experience or our performance because there are biomechanists who don't who will work with athletes to optimize performance and so the laws are, are the same but I choose with my career to look at optimizing just those basic everyday movements that all of our bodies have been doing for a very long time throughout the human timeline. So like things like walking and being able to bend over and pick up things. Um, and, and I'm, I'm interested in why these things have become more challenging for us in the environments in which we live in now. Right. So, um, that's that's how I've taken my education in biomechanics and parlayed it into what I do now, which is just teach about the nuances of movement. Mm-hmm. Now, is this was this a particular area of interest, or was this uh, provoked by something? Did you notice well, something was missing? Did you notice things had changed? Yes, I would say that. Um, you know, I was a very sedentary uh, 
child. And so, you know, I was not familiar with movement. I mean, I played around like kids did and I, and I did a couple of sports in high school, but I was a, I was a reader, um, you know, and I've been always been drawn to the physical sciences and mathematics. So when I went to school um, to university um, for my undergraduate, like I entered as someone studying math and then later physics. And then I stumbled upon this degree called biomechanics. Um, and so that was sort of happenstance. And then when I went to graduate school to study the same field where I tended to specialize was, was brought about by seeing a whole. So in biomechanics is often in, in many universities under the kinesiology umbrella. Kinesiology is the study of human movement in broad strokes. And then everyone has to specialize underneath that. So, um, in a lot of textbooks I was reading, it was saying that human movement was either sports or fitness or dance. And that just didn't make fundamental sense to me because I was thinking, well, what about just the, and I, I came from a family that had um, people with different physical disabilities. And I was thinking, I feel like the movements that people are struggling with in my life are not not working out and, you know, not fitness per se, but the everyday, I'm not being able to, um, get down and up off of the floor, which to me seemed like a really foundational human movement that was neither fitness sports or dance. This was just, how do we move our bodies over the earth to do the basic things that we needed? So I, you know, and I was really interested in the mechanics, like the lever systems of, delivery, baby delivery through the body, you know, that too is falling under the pushes and pulls of the body. And so I've always been drawn to what I would say are more baseline movements that all humans, you know, not like the, I, the concept of exercises recently emerged in, a, in sedentary cultures that are trying to figure out, wow, our, our lifestyle doesn't move our bodies at all. So we have to come up with um, ways to sort of fake movement and we have to go to a place that's just for movement. So I was more, I was more interested in the everyday movements that make up the activities of daily living and why those were dwindling, either opportunities for them were going away because of technological uh, advance advances and or conveniences, or simply the loss of ability in the body. And then again, how those two things were related. So it was definitely provoked, I would say, by my own experiences of moving from being from growing up in a sort of sedentary home and realizing that I could become dynamic, even even not growing up that way. Um, and then also in at university, we're able to work with a lot of different bodies. Like one of the nice things about going through a program where you have a human performance lab is, you know, I took classes where you're working with children and then you're working with um, senior bodies. You're working with people who have dementia. You're working with people who have physical disabilities. You're working with athletes. So you get a broad spectrum of all the bodies out there and all of the movements that are required for, again, activities of daily living. And I thought, wow, that's, that's really the hole that needs to be addressed more so than what we could be doing an, an hour a day or three times a week for, you know, weight management or general fitness. It's this idea of no, our bodies 
are extremely dynamic. They really operate on a backbone of movement, if you will. So what happens when that backbone of movement goes away? What are the diseases that we start to experience? And if people understood that, I bet you they would prioritize movement um, a little more because it wouldn't seem like this nebulous fitness or dance or for fun sort of activity. It would be more basic operating systems. You know, it would be just like changing your oil and, and, and maintaining a machine. Like we tend to know more about the general maintenance of our, of our, uh, of our infrastructure than we do about ourselves. So I chose to focus on, on making sort of a manual, if you will, to that. So do you feel, so from where you started filling this hole, do you feel that you've gone from maybe the idea of bringing people intuitively back to movement to actually having to re-educate them on how to move under the umbrella of where we're living? I think both. Um, I think that what I hear a lot when someone like finishes reading a book or if I just read a review or if I teach a class, they're like, this totally makes sense. Or this, mm-hmm. this was how I was feeling, but I couldn't put my, uh, finger on top of those words or that expression. And to me, that means that we all have sort of an intuition that, that, um, movement is something that we need throughout the day. We, we need more of, but we don't realize that our environment is, is stacked against us. Like, I don't think we understand how, how the choice, the, the, again, those infrastructural choices that we make about how we set up our homes, how we set up our wardrobes, how we set up our day and our lifestyles is the thing that's keeping us from movement, that we keep making sedentary choices. So there's a sort of a, a cultural reveal. And once that's there, and once that's been made, then I think movement opportunities become and taking them becomes much more intuitive. But that being said, because infrastructure is real, because the furniture in your house and the clothes that you've been wearing and the shoes that you've been wearing and the amount that you've been driving um, and the way that you've set up the infrastructure of your life has tangible effects on the tissues of the body, that there is some motion by motion instructed instruction that is beneficial for people who want to make the transition to moving more. And they, again, they are driven to it now intuitively, but there's this real physical limitation that they have. And so that's really where I started was there are a set of motions that you can use to restore those tissues. And so that's what you're often getting. If you're going to get physical therapy or if you're getting um, any sort of corrective exercise or just general exercise training, someone is giving you a format of a physical form to follow that will elicit uh, spot spot strength, right? They're trying to look at your tissues and saying, this is where it's overloaded. This is where it's underloaded. And so I'm going to guide you through this concept of good form here during your movement. And you're going to put musculature back on that will then allow you or, or sometimes just stretch a muscle out or re- change the tissue in some way that makes taking more movement opportunities possible for bodies that have really adapted to not moving. So that is the, those are the bookends of what I do, both showing mm-hmm. how to take those intuitive options, but also what to do 
when you don't feel physically able to. So, okay, so we, we've got this big concept and it sounds like there, there's, uh, there is a lot that we need to do just to start the proper movement process. But when you strip everything down, is there, are there basic movements that when I ask you, Katie, what do you mean by movement that you can say, this is what I mean and this is how we initiate it? Well, so movement is a very broad category of any time mm-hmm. any tissue in your body changes shape. Um, so we have to narrow it down, as you said, for someone who's like, well, what movements should I be doing? So I, I approach movement from the same way that one would approach a diet. You know, like there's categories of foods that we need to eat to make sure we have our macronutrients. And so we have a macronutrient concept in movement as well. We would usually say you need to be making sure that you're doing movements that challenge your cardiovascular system, movements that challenge your strength, movements that challenge your flexibility. Those are concepts of categories, but I, I categorize things a little bit differently. I would say if we're talking about activities of daily living, you would, you would want to make sure you have a category of walking being met every day, meaning can you walk, you know, one to four miles every day? Um, and eventually, you know, of course, always trying to increase volume, but just looking at from where you're starting right now with the total amount of, that you're doing um, is walking, you know, could you, do you have the capability of walking three to five miles, you know, disabilities notwithstanding, but just you know, do you have that ability? Is there some parts of your body that if were they were moving a little bit more smoother, you would be able to accomplish it? Can you get up and down off the floor? Um, they do a test now to see, can you get up and down off the floor, touching down as few parts as possible, meaning starting from a seated cross-legged position? Could you rise using the strength of your legs or do you have to get your hands down and do you have to uh, make multiple adjustments to be able to get up. But then perhaps someone listening to this is I can't even sit on the floor comfortably. Mm -hmm. Then I would say that just floor sitting is its own category. This idea of your hips, knees, ankles, and spine are mobile enough to allow you to get to the floor, um, and just adjust your shape to being on there. And then there would be this, the more strength of your upper body. Could you hang from something? Do you have that brachiation again as one of those age old human movements when we're kids, maybe we climb trees, but we're seeing this, these movements wane. And so we're seeing a loss of grip strength in population. So this idea of maybe you're not going to climb a tree, but could you do a pull up or could you at least hang from your um, hands and wrists? Can they bear the body weight of your body? Cause your shoulders are able to hold that weight. So that would be an idea of basic categories that you would want to, you could give yourself a quick assessment and be like, okay, I can do one of them or two of them, but not the other. So it would give you a sense of then how to direct maybe um, your exercise or your corrective parts. And then based on how you were doing those, we would then correct or we would uh, address which micronutrients you're missing. And those would be the small corrective exercises that prepares your body to be able to do those larger categories of movement. And then how do you deal with the, the carving out of the amount of time that this needs to be what you would call adequate movement? Well, that's, I mean, that's the rub right there is, mm-hmm. as I think that we're going to come up onto the new year pretty soon and everyone's going to list, well, not everyone, but it's, it is a, 
on the top of most people's lists to get more movement, get more exercise is usually how it's, how it's phrased. But we're always limited by this, one, by the concept that we need sort of this concentrated hour or um, if you're going to follow my recommendations, it's more like multiple hours a day. And there's just no way that we've got access to that sort of time. So one of the things I like to show is that the source of movement has always been for humans and all other animals accomplishing the things that you need, you know, that if you're, we all need to eat, but most people have always had to garden or produce or forage their own food. And then as we lost that habit and we were um, going to supermarkets for our food, we at least cooked it, right? At least you know, you're hauling in the foods and you're cutting and chopping and you're kneading bread. And then then there became the instant foods. And I'm not talking about drive throughs but so much as like you would, could buy your bread already made and you could buy your carrots already pre-shredded. So every time there's a transition there, we've lost some of the movements that we had to do. And I'm just using food as an example here. It can go for building a shelter. It could go for transportation, et cetera. So, so I teach that framework of where did movement come from and how could you always choose the more movement rich version of whatever you're already doing in your life. So if you have young children or if you're an allo parent and you watch young children, maybe you're a grandparent who spends time um, with younger children, you can just get down on the floor and stretch your hips while you're playing with them. So instead of you know, having the children over and popping in a video for them and then they're still and watching the video and then you're still sitting in a chair, you could just choose to get down on the floor with them and play a board game or sew or read a book to them. And you can do the corrective exercises that I instruct usually come packaged with this concept of where else do these fit in your life so that you can do other things while you are also exercising. If you have an office um, job, this idea of setting up your office so that while you are on the computer, that you are still able to be weight-bearing, loading your bones, stretching your hips, stretching your calves, working on reducing that excessive curve to the upper spine. So the way we deal with time is by making our daily activities we're already doing more dynamic versus trying to allow all of the things that we do all of the time to stay sedentary and then try to figure out how to clear our schedules so that we can figure so we can fit in one to two hours of movement. I don't think that approach has really worked for most people. So that's the idea of adding some active transportation to um, figuring out where you can carry things. You know, if you have young children, again, you're carrying things, but maybe if you're going to the grocery store, if you can walk carrying a bag of groceries, you know, like a lot of people go to the gym just to carry fake weights to no destination, you know, just from one side of the gym to the other. So the idea of like, well, you could just park a half a mile away, walk to the grocery store, fill up a bag, and then walk the half mile back to your car. And now you've not only done your walking and carrying categories, you also got your groceries, grocery mm -hmm. shopping done. So it's, it's that approach of what I call stacking 
that allows us to deal with the time problem. Well, it's funny, you know, all of these things that have come into our culture and our environment that are supposed to save us, it's an enigma, saving us time, yet we don't have enough time to do these movements. And it's, you know, what you're kind of spinning for us is almost intuition versus common sense added with some creativity to get that motion and movement back into our life that is so essential for disease prevention and motility and moving on to our uh, you know, later years in life. We're going to take a quick break here, Katie. And when we come back, we're going to talk about your newest book. Everyone will be back in a minute. Can't escape disappointment. The delay, but I don't have to make feeling down and defeated the place that I stay. Gonna rise through the moment, gonna speak through the ways, gonna push back the doubt that keeps dragging me down when I can't find a way. Are listening to the Health Hub here on Radio Maria Canada. 
a Catholic voice wherever you are. To contact us and be a part of the show, email thh at radiomaria.ca. We now continue with the program. Here once again is your host, Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. We are talking to Katie Bowman, having a great conversation here on Movement. Katie, you've got, well, your newest book, um, uh, Grow Wild, How to Raise Movers, um, is awesome. And, uh, you know, although my my movers are older now, the ones that I would raise to be movers, it's still information that anyone can pull out and use. And I really want to give people a sense of what this book is about, because if we can initiate this concept of movement in our children and have it as a practice and just part of their everyday life, then we're going to raise a healthier culture. And boy, do we need that. So why did you write this book? Uh, I'm a parent of an eight Oh, sorry, a nine and a 10 year old now. And as I was raising my children, I was able to apply a lot of the concepts that people who were coming to me who were in their 50s and 60s saying, what what could I have done differently that would have changed my physical outcome right now? Foot pain that I'm dealing with, my back pain or my my hip or my knee wearing out, like what, what should my parents have known? What could I have known as a younger adult? And so I would always try to explain it to them briefly, but I realized now we, we really need to get to almost a, almost a ground zero for a, a blueprint of what it would look like to set up children to be movers. Because again, childhood is that period of time where you're, you're setting your adult body shape. You don't really get to go back and do it over again. So I I wrote it because I felt like I had enough experience now having children, you know, those formative years, I would say the book is really for the zero to 12 age range. And I felt like I had a strong enough real world interaction with children versus my educational background. I wanted to have both because it's the practical tips that come from applying what you learn you know, in school or what you learn from books. So I wanted to make sure I wasn't just spouting sort of the scientific details, but also the practical. And here's how I did it as a working parent. Um, here's how I did it in, um, in, a, in a real world situation. And then the book has lots of stories of how everyone has been able to figure out how to do it in different settings, very rural, um, very urban. And then of course, throughout the globe so that you get a a very, you get a a more diverse picture than just how I did it in my house. Well, you know, grow wild people, you know, the image might be of, you know, kids allowed to run free in restaurants and, you know, schools having them stand up and move around and causing a ruckus. And I guess that can be one of the, the greatest issues for parents who are, very much in this space of having their children move frequently is reconciling environmental, uh, social, cultural expectations with wanting to have your child move around and get exercise and, and, and build a strong body. And how do you approach these things? Well, yeah, I just definitely took a risk with the title, didn't I, by calling it <laughs> Grow Wild. Now, and there is one picture of my child doing a handstand on our very low kitchen table. But the, but the, the book is, uh, the book addresses that because I think 
we do need to make some cultural shifts overall to see when it is simply us wanting our children to be how we perceive as well-behaved in social settings, but also in our own home. We have a lot of rules in our, in, in our homes that discourage children from movement. And, you know, these, these rules are old. And a lot of times these rules are, are, are helpful because they keep things from being broken or they keep things, keep children from being hurt. You know, don't hang on the bookshelf is a good idea because bookshelves weren't designed to be hung on, you know, and they fall over on children and then children get hurt. And then we start to associate their natural climbing instinct with something that's dangerous rather than seeing what the problem is, is that our children have been brought inside more in these times than ever before. And we haven't accommodated their biological needs. So it's more about how to set up your home so that your needs uh, for, I'll say as a parent, peace and quiet sometimes um, to not have things being broken, to not have children being hurt unnecessarily are being met while at the same time, the children's need for movement is also being met because I think sometimes we're not all getting our needs met and grow wild is definitely an outline of here are our needs. Movement is a, is a category that's equal, if not larger to food. And so what we've done is sort of become totally unaware of the movement needs needs of not only us as adults, but also our children. And as PE goes away in schools, as, um, as we start to lose those spaces where children were once allowed to run wild, while maybe not inside the house, but the bulk of their time was spent outside, as there's been a shift that's made children come inside almost all of their day, they are really suffering physiologically from having no accommodation for these needs. So it's something simple, like, could you clear an area of your home to make movement permissible? Could you add something small and inexpensive, like a $20 chin-up bar or a set of uh, prefab rings that are made to be installed safely in a doorway and at least create an outlet for them to meet their needs? Um, is there a place for them to tumble? Do we need so many knickknacks and tables to meet our needs of decor or could we compromise, you know? And then that concept is applied to different categories. So it, that concept is outlined for how schools um, might be able to make some adjustments. Um, and and it's it's just that simple. It's It's how do we add really a lot of times low profile movement, you know, again, it's, it's not about, you know, running wild in the house and everywhere. It's much more accessible and easily accomplished, I would say. Um, but it does require that we take a look at some of the biases that we hold towards movement because we have them. That's we, without realizing it, we're sort of set up as humans to conserve as much energy as possible. And a lot of times we're mistaking our need. Uh, we're, mis we're mistaking our needs for things like rest and decreased energy in dealing with problems for our needs to be 
still. And so the more that those are fleshed out in our own minds, the more we can encourage not only children, but ourselves to move more in everyday environments. You know, I see the evolution of the schoolyard from my kid. My oldest child is 30. And from what the schoolyard looked like when he was in school to what my youngest even, and even now when I look all in the name of safety, uh, it's kind of sad. And we we were kind of missing, if we want quiet and, and you know, at night we want a quiet house and that's what we're striving for, uh, movement increases their, their tiredness. It, you know, it, it leads to good sleep and it leads to, in my mind, it leads to good behavior just because you're expelling the energy, you're moving, you're happier, and that leads to a happier child, which leads to a happier home. So it's very sad to me what's not allowed in schoolyards anymore. Um, and and I know I don't see it changing in the next little while because I think we're still going along that path of uh, safety for the children, uh, and especially in COVID when they're in their, their own cohorts outside. It's 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 not being moved enough in the right direction. We've taken away a lot of their things and um, replaced them for what you would call more a, sed- a sedentary lifestyle. Now, moving on from there, uh, because I think it's very important because there is a, a dichotomy of ideology with putting uh, children, babies, you know, when they start walking into shoes and something that um, I would really love your opinion on. Uh, because even to this day, you've got parents saying, well, my doctor said to put my child in shoes that support the ankles and other doctors saying, let them walk without anything. What is your take on how to initiate the walking process for kids? Well, so I outlined that I've written a few books on feet. So feet uh, and and the relationship between feet, uh, knees, hips, and really overall mobility as an adult, because I I do think that that's one of the things that's not talked about enough is one of the reasons adults aren't able to make those even basic, you know, 20 minutes a day of walking guidelines that come down for just basic metabolic health is because of foot pain and foot structural adaptations that are often to shoes. So, so I, I'm definitely a fan of barefoot or minimally shod walking time for emerging walkers. Um, you know, my kids never had shoes on in the house and I, and I do get into some of them, some of the technicality of it in grow wild, you know, even I, there's one story about, I noticed that my child, an emerging walker was wearing, you know, footy pajamas and, and was slipping. And I was like, Oh, right. Like I've removed traction. Here's, I have this emerging Walker. And because of what I put him in, he can't push off the ground. So he was slipping. I had put him in a slippery suit, even though it was just baby clothes, you know, as far as I was culturally concerned. So I cut off the feet of all of the feety pajamas and boop, he stood right up where it looked like he couldn't stand up. It looked like there was something problematic with his with his aptitude for walking. And then as soon as I removed the thing that I had put on into the equation, he was able to express his ability to stand right up. Now that all being said, um, we live in a world that has a lot of detritus in it. So, so, you know, we had to, you know, when I'm in my home, you know, being barefoot isn't a big deal. You know, if we are going out to a park, a lot of times, 
a lot of times children, and I'm talking about infants and toddlers at this point, they're in shoes for warmth. Um, There is sort of an, an old perspective that the shoe is molding the future walker, which is, I find an interesting perspective given how long we've had feet and how many, and how many miles we have walked minimally (laughs) shot over thousands and thousands of miles each year that now in, in the age where we walk almost not at all, this is the age in which shoes, you know, will mold our feet into, um, being healthy. So it's, I just think it's, it's sort of an, an old, sort of an out, I'll say an out, like more, a more outdated perspective. But I think a lot of times it's just confused with, if you take people who don't move very much and live in a world that's covered with human made stuff, as well as detritus, that that interface, the way people's feet come out in that particular interface looks like we need a lot of foot technology, footwear technology to make us better walkers, where I would say, I'm going to put you on a foot exercise program because what I see um, is that, well, I'll back up here for a second. 25% of the number of muscles and bones in the body are from the ankle down. So we have never exercised our feet very rarely. Maybe some of you who've taken a class at gave some foot exercises might have, but in general, most people have put all of that anatomy into shoes, tightened the shoes up and went on with their day every single day of their walking lives. And so what we have are a very large hunk of our anatomy being completely atrophied while still being underneath the weight of the rest of the body. Cause we're still walking around from point A to point B on top of our feet, but we haven't done anything to strengthen all of those individual muscles. And so those parts in our feet need texture. Um, You know, a lot of the joints in the foot, there's 33 joints in each foot. You have one joint in your elbow, there's 33 in your feet. So imagine, you know, bending, uh, doing like a bicep curl, pulling your hand towards your shoulder and moving it away, that full range of motion of just one joint. It's like, well, how do you move all the joints in the foot? You move them by stepping on lumpy, bumpy things. You know, if you've ever had to walk along a riverbed full of cobblestones, um, those are forcing the joints in your foot to change. And so we don't like that feeling when we're not used to it. So we go for stiffer shoes, right? We have outdoor shoes that are even stiffer than just our street shoes. But if you Go back and retrain those muscles in your feet and those joints in your feet to be able to accommodate some of those stones. Um, And of course, we don't start with stones. We start with a very soft uh, ball, like a tennis ball, and just gently rolling your feet out on top of it and letting your foot practice being in different shapes. And if you strengthen the muscles in your the arches of your feet and you start learning how to relift your toes. If you want a good exercise right now, you can try taking off your shoes and standing up, trying to lift only your big toes, right? That's a big muscle in the foot that most of us don't even have any control over yet. It's so essential for gait and balance and pain-free walking. So I set up my children and, and we do this ourselves to be able to walk well, um, without shoes, of course, you know, environment 
dependent. And then we opt for minimal shoes. So these are shoes that maximize protection of, you know, glass and detritus and sort of the hardness of the human landscapes world while still allowing a lot of that movement in. So if you grab a minimal shoe, the soles of them are quite flexible. You can bend and twist. So they offer the protection, but they also at the same time uh, allow the movement that the foot needs into the foot. Like it, it allows the foot to move more like it needs to move when we're just walking around. So that's, um, that's what I recommend people do for emerging walkers. And then as well as themselves, the recommendations really aren't any different for full grown bodies. You know, it's funny. I broke my leg uh, badly uh, 10 years ago and the most painful and the hardest journey back was strengthening the muscles in my feet. I was in a cast for six months and it took a long time to get those muscles back into shape. So uh, very easy to lose the musculature uh, anywhere in the body, of course, but you know, when your feet aren't being used, um, I, I talk to my kids all the time about gripping and things like that, but so much more that you're offering. It, there's so much intuition that's crossing over the science. And, and that's what I like about your approach and your books. What's your favorite book that you've written? Oh, oh, oh this is like asking me my favorite child. Um, <laughs> oh, my favorite book. Um, I don't, I don't know how I could say that because because they're really like a set to me. I feel like I'm slowly working on one complete encyclopedia of books. Encyclopedia. Excellent. I, you know, I just recorded the audio book for simple steps to foot pain relief. And I, and that was a book that I wrote in 2012 or 11. And, and I was like, this is such, I, I love that book because one, there are so many people out there with foot pain Mm -hmm. And, and it just seems like there's no solution. And I think that's that concept comes from this idea that we know so little about how our bodies work or the importance of movement. Um, and this book, the book is so hopeful because it's really saying, let me tell you something about how your feet and your tissue works and how you can do simple things like back your weight up over your heels that you can actually control. You come with all of the parts to dictate where the loads are occurring in the body. But if no one ever told you that, you think that every step should, that you have should be your weight sort of bearing down on that one painful part of your foot. And so when you do that, then the only option seems to not move at all. I got to get my weight off my foot. And that means I have to sit down mm-hmm. and not walk. And when does, when does that, that audio book come out? Yeah. Um, it's just, you're going to be speaking to me at night, I think. <laughs> okay, great. Yeah. Put it, put me under your pillow and I'll just yeah, whisper, exactly. whisper all the things too. <laughs> and it's just this idea of, yeah, you can control and move that around. So I'm going to, I'm going to go with that book because it was my first. So it's, and it's just, it's really been evergreen. Like I went back to look at it. I'm like, this book still holds up. It's not outdated at all. And it's still really helpful. So I'm going to, I'm going to put that one on, even though, even the grow wild is my newborn in my arms. I'm going to go with my first, my oldest. Fair enough. Fair enough. X, I know it was a tough question, but I just, I had to ask because they're, they're very different. The book about uh, movement and DNA is very heady. And so I just, I kind of wonder where your, your fun spot lied and everything is available on Amazon. It's been translated. All your books have been translated um, numerous times, correct? So 
definitely a need out there. Definitely um, the consumption for your material must be so gratifying because it's, it's so important. And we, we, you know, we've, we haven't even got into the meat and potatoes of so many different areas I wanted to talk about, but I wanted to thank you for enlightening us, spending time with us. Uh, it's a very important subject and one that I know people will gravitate to. So thank you, Katie, for being with us. Thank you for having me on. This is lovely. Everybody, we'll talk to you next week on The Health Hub. have been listening to The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi, here on Radio Maria Canada.